0: Hello, hope this finds you well. Um, Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. Quick location check, I'm currently on the East Nuke of Fife in my hometown with my folks in the homeland. So our apologies, well actually no apologies if I sound extra Scottish this week. It's who I am. Anyway, this week on the podcast, not one, not two, but three utterly joyous guests for you to enjoy, all of whom are interpreting the work of a couple of very different types of genius. First, I bring you Barney Douglas and Felix White, who have formed a doubles pairing extraordinaire on Mark and Roll, a wonderful documentary which Barney directed and Felix scored about the legendary tennis champ. It's Wimbledon meets Michael Mann's heat, and I absolutely loved it then we have a first-time movie director who's been wowing theatre audiences for years, the delightful Carrie Cracknell on her Netflix adaptation of Jane Austen's Persuasion. So without further ado, let's get on with it with one of Felix's cues from McEnroe, Outburst. Congratulations. I was I was just saying to Barney, Felix, that I am um, you know, I had a preconception of this man uh, through headlines and TV footage and and how they chose to kind of represent him and even kind of historically pick up things from the past to reiterate personality traits and stuff. And I feel like you gave me the opportunity to learn about him from the start again through the film. Um I think he's done a beautiful job. It's really fascinating.
1: Oh. oh, thanks, Edith. Yeah. yeah,
2: Barney's done a beautiful job. Yeah, wow, well, everyone, everyone <laughs> <laughs> takes a family to make a film. Um, <laughs> where,
0: where did it start, Barney? Why, why John McIno? And how did you kind of because he's, he's very much part of this film, you know, he's he's authoring it really, and um, which gives it kind of mm. kudos and credibility and and truth, I think, as well. So,
2: where obviously, did that journey start? Obviously, I knew about John, but I'd, I'd never like encountered him and i wasn't a massive like tennis fan i knew a bit about it but um at the end of the previous film that we did the produce one of the producers came to me and said there's a chance that john might finally be ready to like tell his story a little bit would you be interested so i was like oh well yeah absolutely i mean just nice to be offered a job to be honest <laughs> and um and then uh, and then i had to go to new york and see him and that was pretty intense because I'm pretty sure he lives at the top of the, I don't remember, Ghostbusters. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like with the ghost dogs at the top at the yeah. end of the building. Well, that's, I think, pretty sure that's John's apartment. Wow. Um, yeah, and...
0: Uh, <laughs> he got to Weaver as a neighbour.
2: She's in the fridge, I think. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> so we uh, went in and up the lift, and it opened the, the lift doors like, opened into his apartment, <gasps> and John was just stood there, like, in a dressing gown and slippers. And it was, like, 12 o'clock. And um <laughs> like, uh, come in and that's so that was my first meeting with john and it, it i basically had a few of these encounters to build up some trust until he was like let's do this film type thing and um i'd been speaking to felix about it quite early so he knew that i was <laughs> going through these various strange encounters with john um and that's where it began really and it was just about trust because i wanted him as you say to be the, the voice mm-hmm. front and center of it telling his own story
0: and was it a case of from sitting down, you know, once you kind of got him on board and sitting down and doing interviews with him, that it, it kind of helped with a narrative? Or did you work the other way in terms of what was the kind of journey of, of the story or how you would tell a story?
2: Yeah, good question. A bit of both, really. The thing that, that John's problem in terms of a, like a cinematic narrative is that his career is front loaded. So he has no, there's not a natural ending to something. So that was the, like the first problem that I tried to and then also just yeah, finding a way to bring his story to a close that felt natural because thankfully he's he's still with us, so there's <laughs> you can you know you can't sort of, there isn't this sort of spectre hanging over the film. He's he's still doing well. So um, I had this image very early on of like a, a night lit New York and a, mm. a neon template, like inspired by quite a lot of '80s films and stuff. And with that, ironically, came the kind of sound of the music that I was thinking in my head and bits and pieces. So, I just sort of thought the idea of uh, Dust Till Dawn would give it a framework that you could hang around everything and it kind of represented if he sort of repeated his journey of life through from his childhood home to where he is now and Patty, which is this kind of woman that I feel really accepted him and, and brought in yeah. a degree of peace that he hadn't had before. If I could do that journey physically with him that gave us like a spine of the film that then we could disappear off to other memories, basically.
0: I like how he's almost a bit of his own version of like the equaliser, like an Edward <laughs> Woodward character walking through New York in a way. I kind of yeah. like that. In the hours where everybody else is like asleep or doing stuff, he's just kind of quietly sort of walking about, Drifting. taking it in. Yeah. yeah, totally. It's great. Through
2: the moody streets. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, Obviously, the pandemic was horrendous for everybody, but like one of the strange, small little positives for us was that New York was empty. So that was really, really trippy, quite weird, but it yeah. obviously, I think, added to the atmosphere in the film, really.
0: When you say you kind of um, talking about the, how the film sounded, what I loved about it is, because obviously he's got a... You know, he's got he's got s- skills on the guitar, you know, in terms of he's, you know, I remember as a kid kind of seeing him on stage with like various people on telly and stuff like that. So I don't know. It feels like a really nice kind of it's almost a, it feels like it's almost kind of it's his kind of inner voice in a way at times.
1: Well, Felix,
2: you should probably take this one off.
1: <laughs> yeah, we talked about you're right. I mean, he loves music. Firstly, I mean, the first time I met John, was on Zoom in this room, and Barney had told me, like, you know, we, we're going to do this, but he, music's very important to him. So he wants to meet the person who's sort of supposedly making the music. Supposedly, <laughs> <yeah>. like that. <laughs> kind of like fraught, you know, because he's a major of like Keith, Keith Richards and all these people. Do you know what I mean? So I was a bit like, oh, God. <laughs> so, um, and obviously, he's really into rock and roll music. And he was trying to explain to me what he thought the music should be like. And he sort of couldn't. He just ended up sort of saying, just don't make it sound like Titanic, okay? <laughs>
2: yeah. Which is Felix's
1: go-to sound, to be fair. I sat here like this, like, okay, like literally writing, not Titanic. <laughs> Got it. Done. So when you say inner voice, John didn't quite explain it. But when I spoke with Barney about the film, that he was like, we talked really early on about um, films like Heat, mm-hmm. Thief, which Tangerine Dream did the soundtrack to, Those kind of like eighties, you know, sort of New York American films, and what was what we thought was really cool about the music in that is that you had that juxtaposition between the sort of synthy, dark, layered, like angsty stuff, and then you do have these sort of guitar hero moments, and there was something really nice in that in what the film was saying because there are moments where you know John has this genius where he sees the tennis court a little bit like a sort of computerized thing where you can just calculate, do, 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 like a sort of at a supernatural rate. And then there's the human fallibility and the guy that bursts and the guy that can't take the strain all that kind of thing. So it felt cool to be like, oh, the music kind of has that tension within it as well. And can pop in and out of it. And then mm-hmm. I did feel like, you know, I, for John, it would be like, there's the odd guitar solo or guitar hero moment just to feel like, oh, you know, little ref, it was, you know, it wasn't yeah. right? To do a John film without that. But a lot, a lot of the time, we're just trying to sort of suggest what was it actually inside John's head while he was doing it, especially in the really famous Wimbledon moments, that kind of things that people have seen thousands of times to just kind of make that feel like you're watching it for the first time, but from inside John's head and realising that what's driving him is not necessarily positive emotions all the time, you know?
0: clever because it does kind of give you a sort of I don't know sometimes you know like when you're going through you're having a gray day like it's like oh it's going to be one of those days it's going to be a foggy day you know whatever and 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 it's almost kind of like that it's sometimes like a kind of a wall of sound in a way of kind of you know it's almost kind of like it could be a burst of anything whatever your instrumentation is in your head you know what I mean it could be some you know, it could be like a saxophone or whatever, but it's almost like a bit of free jazz freestyle. Yeah, in a way. Well, it's, That's it's, kind of, yeah,
2: it's interesting you say that actually, because the jazz little elements were part of it because it's chaos and, and unpredictability. And also with John, you know, this guy who obviously suffered like high anxiety. So trying to, we spoke about trying to make an audience feel what, what he felt. So how can you do that with sound? How can you do that with like vibration? How can you do that with bass notes? And how can, you know, all those kind of things and really put yourself in his head and feel like it's almost sick sometimes. as he's Yeah. But then I think it becomes a visceral, really visceral experience.
0: It's also that thing as well, because you, you cover different decades as well. You know, you're kind of telling his story as well. It, it can't, the music can't have a period, really. Do you know what I mean? It's got to cross those decades without it feeling like it doesn't fit or relate to that. That can, must have been quite tricky as well.
1: But you know what I found is, um, <laughs> while we we're making a film, like I was speaking to people, like, oh, I'm doing John Macro, da-da-da-da-da. The memory of him is so vivid in everyone's <laughs> head. It's almost like from whatever era he's always in color, and like the rest of it's in like monochrome. Like so, when people are thinking about like back at you know being kids or whatever, it's like they remember him in the red and blue like headband or whatever. But the rest of it is like a little bit like extinct. Yeah, so kind of like having that feeling of just him popping out. Do you know what I mean? Like generationless in lots of ways. Yeah, absolutely. But the, like the musical thing, it was just like, I, we just like that idea of, you know, like Barney really like the idea of Borg and McEnroe being like Pacino and De Niro, like we're both yes. two sides of the same <laughs> coin and like, you know, like, I don't want to kill you, like you complete me type situation between the two of them kind of thing. So that was like, that was a lot of what that, that thing was like nodding at that sort of deep cinematic connection between two like alpha characters you know
2: i I think that's at the heart of the film he's looking for this connection in all these people he encounters from his father to borg to to tatum to vitas to eventually patty to me it's it's kind of it's a it's a love story really like the whole way through but it's like kind of in a way like he's destroying this love everywhere he goes or or it's somehow not working because of the way he is or what he's learned growing up he's he can't form this bond so yeah. we wanted that kind of slightly unresolved thing in the music as well so that you you had hints of emotion and all that kind of stuff but then there would be something dark that obviously got, yeah. got in the way but I mean my favourite bit that, that Felix did is definitely the, the kind of theme that when Patty kind of comes into his life it's such a beautiful piece of music like it's it just makes me well up all the time like when we put that on I was like oh man they so just nailed it. Cause that's really hard to do without it being like saccharine and that kind of thing.
0: with that, Felix? What was the kind of process of sort of,
1: of that? Um, So by that time, we got quite deep into the process. I knew exactly what the sort of palette was, so to speak. I was really struck by that because there's a lovely, like, lack of resolution in the the end of the film where it it would have been so tempting to tie it all up and have an answer for everything. But John actually gets asked at the end what love is, and he can't answer the question. He still doesn't know. And there's that thing about him um, him and his dad, binding to connection. His dad was, like, he's he sort of doing the maths on it back in his head and thinking, oh, I was looking for something from my dad that he never gave me. So anyway, I was just so moved by that, just seeing someone like that just be as raw as that, you know, on this screen. So I just instinctively did it. I just did it while I was watching it. I didn't really think about it too much, you know.
0: It's weird because when, I'm, when, I, when I, I watched the film a couple of times, and so the second time I was watching, I was really thinking about, about the score, you know, and watch. first time I'm kind of just in it and watching it, second time I'm trying and paying more attention to the score. And in my head I had an image of you with your <laughs> guitar around your neck watching
1: the film. <laughs> and I just reacting to it in a way. You
2: did you do a bit of that I think, didn't you? I
1: do there was a bit of that, yeah. I mean It yeah, feels
0: yeah. really natural. It feels like so it's so connected because it doesn't feel like, oh, we've written a score and we've got into a big studio and recorded it with tons of people. It just feels so connected to him. And I'm sure it wasn't simple, but it's got a beautiful simplicity to it.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I was just quite a lot of it. I was just responding to it in that way, especially the sort of sad stuff.
2: I think also because we don't come from film schools or like music, composition, <laughs> classes if those things exist i don't know um like so we just come at it i always for the filmmaker always look for like the heart of the humanity of the story and all the sport is great and adds drama and so on and so forth but you're looking for the the heart of a of a story really and i think maybe felix is quite similar from a musical perspective so we're not really tied by maybe there's you know certain rules that you should do as a score like i don't know maybe there are but we don't we don't know them so we just kind of react to how we feel
1: you know that's such a good point. And that's like, that's so true, Edith, to talk back to like my past life in the Maccabees, not sort of collectively, because there are other people in Maccabees that are great at it. But when I was um, individual, I went, when I was young, I felt like I knew so much about bands. Like I'd sort of collated all the information and all the rules and like what it was supposed to be. But sometimes I found it really hard, especially in the early years, to sort of make the music because mm. I had so clearly in my head, like, oh, that's not as good as, Bob Dylan or whatever or whatever it is. You know, mm-hmm. it took a while for me to be able to become self-confident to do it myself. But with films, I don't have the same I've obviously always gone to the cinema and watched it, but I don't have the same sort of like back catalogue whirring through my head. It's like quite restrict can be quite restrictive. So like when I am making it, it made me think of all the people that I knew when I was like nineteen who I was jealous of because they could just do it and be like, Oh, is that
2: good? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, that's- yeah basically
1: chances that's basically totally you know what I mean when you're not um you're not overthinking it yeah much or you're not you're not aware of what it's all supposed to be and that's where good stuff sometimes happens if that makes sense I
0: totally agree with you I mean I kind of weirdly have a similar thing with like sometimes I feel like I can over prepare for interviews and things like that and it's kind of like I've kind of worked myself up into a slight frenzy of going okay you know, it's like actually, yeah. if you've just if you've watched it, you've paid attention, and you've got a few notes. That's all you need.
1: Totally, and just have a conversation about
0: Absolutely. it.
1: Absolutely, that's what people respond to, isn't it? Because people sense that on some level, they sensed it has been over for, or you know, was c- constricted in some way.
2: That's the thing. Like when you're going through, you must both find this, but when you're going through like some process of creating something or working on something, <laughs> the more you grip tighter to what it needs to be and what it should be, like the more your instincts completely go. And once the instincts go, you're a bit lost. So I was definitely really conscious on this film even with someone like John McEnroe, who's can be pretty intense, trying to make sure I kept enough balance with that and with Felix as well. Like so that we instinctively went where it felt right. And we we just kind of let that lead us rather than think, oh, well it needs to be like this or it should be like this and that kind of stuff because oh, it's just so restricting i think yeah. generally speaking if you follow your instincts you, you're going to be all right and if it doesn't quite work out well at least it's your instincts fault, and it's not someone else's you know so. <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> didn't even know when we started doing it, John had never talked about his dad really publicly or that kind no. of that being his coach and all that, that sort of. So, it, so you didn't actually know that was going to be. You know, that was just fed into it just on the, off the back of one interview with him when he just suddenly went
2: pop. Didn't Completely, it? like most of the really lower key, because he's so he's so up for a lot of yeah. the film. Most of the stuff where he actually finally sinks back down and that energy level comes down is the last 40 minutes of two days, probably of of an interview. Like it's the last 40 minutes when finally stuff started to come out about his dad. And he was trying to almost process it as he talked about it. Cause I don't think he ever really said this stuff out loud at all. So it sort of became this therapy session in a way for him, this confession, this like interrogation of himself. And that was really challenging for Felix because we have that dad section towards the end of the film where it needed subtle, like, underscoring, but it also needed to be so gentle so that you didn't, like, fracture this moment because it's yeah. not like he just splurges all this information that tells you everything. It's actually... It's got a journey, is not it? Gaps. yeah. And it's the gap. It's what he's not saying that, really is really strong um, because mm. he doesn't he doesn't know what he's looking for but he's looking for something yeah so that was the biggest I thought the biggest challenge for Felix was that bit of music it was it and it was like four or five minutes long so it wasn't sure
0: feel like songs like the opening is like yeah. i wanted to talk to you about the opening as well because yes. i like it. it's it got kind of i'm just looking at my notes because i try not like change my notes as well as i'm watching that it right it's like, opening cue bit sci-fi blade runner over new york skyland then <laughs> into an awesome track <laughs> it's like what i wrote
2: it's like it's banging that that music is banging he sent yeah. me that as a as an iphone demo like i was in i think i was in new york actually with john and felix yeah. sent that across and i was just like that's it like that was the one you usually get a moment where you go yes that is like Mm. almost the heart of the the soundtrack that that feels like the announcement so to speak
0: because you you know you're kind of you know the new york skyline and stuff you're setting a tone you're kind of it's not kind of going this is what the film's about but it's it's got to kind of have a bit of connection to the next you know hour four minutes two hours sort of thing
2: absolutely the whole tone of the film all the themes um you try to get them in there and you're preparing the audience basically so like you said you went in with all oh, right, well, I know where John Macinery is like, <laughs> yeah. i probably know what this is going to be like it's going to you know so immediately you want to state or I do anyway you want a statement up front saying whatever you thought this is going to be it's not going to be that and then the challenge was for Felix to <laughs> musically demonstrate that uh, which I mean that that, I, that I'd love to hear a remix of that it's absolutely banging that to you
1: that's um that's true though I think that was just what we had in mind That you know sports documentaries sometimes come with a certain thing that you're expecting to see so, and mm. just want people to be sat in a cinema just imagining with popcorn being like okay like we're on we're in yeah. for like a ride you know what I mean if you feel yeah. like oh okay we're, we're, we're this is actual cinema like this is going to be like a proper adventure you know
0: yeah I loved as well how because of, what was it like for you Fee because you got as well was kind of you know, you're scoring this emotional story. And I love the kind of, the, I love the love story between him and Borg as well. It's like, oh my God, when he went, it was kind of like this, his world just dropped away yeah. from him. But getting to kind of score games, you know, those moments where we have those, yeah. where you show the footage and you're, you're getting to soundtrack these iconic games with these legendary players that must know how much you kind of love sport and cricket particularly. That must have been a real kind of, I don't know, was that fun to do as well?
1: Yeah, that was um, it's quite a rare privilege, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, I, but it, the luck the fortunate thing, actually, is if it, if it had been cricket, which I know a lot about, I don't think I would have done it in the same way because it, it, was, it was not like sort of beat by beat dependent. It was just about the kind of storytelling, really. Yeah. I didn't have as much of an understanding of like what exactly happened when. It was more about how John was feeling the search for perfection and that, that kind of like, yeah, that kind of feeling, and like you say, it's Love Story ball but in that tie break, there's that kind of feeling of like, you know, when you're like falling in love and you have that feeling in your stomach and you're like, oh God, I don't know if I like it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> this of, isn't going to end well. Yeah, I,
1: I think I might, I might pre- press jet now. I don't, I don't want, yeah, this is. <laughs> and like, that, that sort of feeling of that. Yeah that weird thing that connection brings sometimes as well, where you're like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, you're was, exposed, like, don't you? Yes, exactly. Well, he was extremely exposed. But yeah, like I was saying, I think that was kind of, the task there really was just to make it feel like you're watching that for the very first time. And even though most of the people in cinema will know exactly what happened and how it happened, to be experiencing it as if it's happening in front of you, but at, inside John's head. Mm. And how, and, and how the whole world was on that court in that moment, and nothing else mattered at all. And you get a sense of it actually from the footage because people don't have phones, obviously. Mm. So it's really striking to me that when it cuts away to the crowd, they're so engaged yeah. with it in a different way. There's no one checking out for a second. And you get the idea that that wasn't even happening there, it was happening around the world. Like Nelson Mandela was in prison listening to it. Mm. Wow like in, across India watching it, like Andy Warhol had woken up early. So it was like the whole, like globally, it was like a gigantic thing. So you must have sensed you know, that sort of claustrophobia, but on a global scale.
0: also because tennis is so quiet you know it's like in those in the, in the court as well it's kind of like quiet please you know it's like all that stuff where it's like you can kind of the tension the sort of weight of that silence almost in that and that, so that's kind of lovely to play with
1: as well also do you know what that's cool about that it's like that's like the end of heat when um and know they're in, <laughs> in silence like sort of like hiding from each other and there's that thing of like connection but they're trying to kill each other at the same time
0: Who's De Niro and who's Pacino?
1: Great oh, question. question. <laughs> Why have we never discussed that?
2: I don't know. I think De Niro is borg because John Pacino, like, well, I mean, I'm assuming people who maybe listen to have seen Heat, so I don't want to yeah. ruin the ending. But if you haven't, go, on, yeah, go and
0: rectify that immediately. Mute now.
2: <laughs> yeah, mute now. Um, because Pacino is left standing, but he's kind of... Lost. he wishes he wasn't you know yes. um Great answer. So that's my uh that's my it's such a good question we've never even never even thought about that know. just to just collect to be of
0: service guys glad
2: to Thank be of service going, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> what was what was he like though sorry just to, to get off john for a second but like oh. you know he sort of stepped away from that world what was he 25 or something yeah. borg it's crazy God, he was so handsome and he's still
2: handsome. <laughs>
0: then when you what see dream him the, Oh my dreamy Still, oh, like look at his, my voice just broke when I think
2: <laughs> Honestly. When you well, see him
0: on the end of his little jetty and he's yeah. kind of, you know, you're like, oh, of course he lives there. Like, yeah, he's
2: yeah. just chilled on a on a Swedish lake. He was the loveliest guy. I mean, it took quite a while to to sort of secure that access, basically. Um, obviously pandemic and stuff like that. But um also, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't speak a lot. Yeah. He doesn't do many things like that at all. He is quite reclusive in that respect.
0: Are they still mates?
2: Yeah. Like, his love and respect for John, kind of what they'd gone through and shared together, definitely was the reason he did it. And, um, you know, as Borg interviews go, it's probably one of the more revealing ones just because there was a hint of emotion in there. And, and um, he was such a lovely man. He was so patient. He had so much time for us. Like... He definitely has an aura that John speaks about at the beginning of the, of the film. He definitely has that. I also, there's something there with Borg as well. Like he's contained himself so much, I think, throughout his career as a brief teenager. As a teenager, he was briefly quite angry, I think, and stuff like that. And then he just contained himself, which John could never work out why and how he did it. And I, there's, there's something there with Bjorn. I, I think, I don't know what it is, but like, it was, it's fascinating. And to think, yeah, he just walked off the court through the kitchens into the car and never played a Grand Slam again. I mean, McEnroe basically killed his idol, which is, and he never sort of recovered from it in a way. Amazing.
0: Maybe you should make a documentary with him next.
2: <laughs> it would be fascinating. Oh, wouldn't but, it? Yeah, like a sequel. Yeah, we'll see.
0: When he's losing that whole section as well, and the kind of the, this, you know, it's it's kind of the guitar specifically around that, you know, in terms of it's it's really clever because it really sort of hits home the kind of, the definitive choice, I guess, that he's made or he's about to make.
1: When, when uh, macaro starts losing. When
0: Bjorn, uh, when he's losing that whole, when he's, when yeah. you can see that he's, yeah, when it's kind of like,
2: yeah. 81, it's kind of quite that jazzy yeah. guitar. And it's just... um operatic I kind of I'm not sure if that's the right word but like it f- felt certainly that was a track that that Felix did a, a similar track to that later in the film to kind of sit in the sound realm but that was a track actually taken from the Heat soundtrack <laughs> it was guy by, by a guy called Terj Ripdal oh wow
0: Terj Ripdal, <laughs> Terj Ripdal hey, check it,
2: yeah unbelievable he should it's be a, a
0: tennis player
2: <laughs> yeah he's like a, a jazz kind of slightly synth Oh, yeah, that was one of the soundtracks. Of course you've got it on vinyl. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it just gives it that, like, almost, like, Shakespearean feel of, like, yeah. a fallen idol, basically. I mean, that was one of the, the challenges that Felix had, actually, because we picked out a few little bits of music, Pink Floyd being one of them. Yeah. And we wanted those to feel part of the score as well, so that it was hard to differentiate, in a way, between what Felix had written and... and and those licensed tracks, of which there weren't many, but so that was, I guess, one of the challenges you faced for you, wasn't it? Like the kind of getting the instrumentation similar and all that kind of thing. Yeah,
1: but that, I mean, that was quite helpful in a way. Like you say, that was just kind of, especially in, this, in the case of the Pink Floyd song. I just thought it'd be really cool that if that sort of merged out of a score, and so for a second you just didn't, you you weren't aware that it was Pink Floyd, and starts singing it type thing. So that how they just sort of like interact with each other a little bit.
0: Well, it's kind of a bit like sort of when a director will use temp score sometimes, you know, in terms of. (laughs) The
2: bane of. uh, Yeah,
0: most composers (laughs) life. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I also like the kind of um, the like visually as well. I just I think it just looks great. You know, you've got that archive footage, which is great. But just the way you've shot him, New York, how it's a real character in there as well. And the kind of. The, the kind of graphics as well that you use for those little moments, like the kind of quite Tron like as well. Yes. So it still kind of gives it that sort of, I don't know, that weirdly, that sort of Blade Runner sort of thing that I was talking about earlier.
2: Yeah, well, you want to put it in the era. You're trying to, I think we, Felix and I spoke about this of the music and everything and the sound designers and stuff. You want people to sit in a cinema and be immersed in this world and believe it and just enter it. I don't, I want to be entertained in a cinema. I want to kind of be transported. And yeah. That's what I try and give to audiences and then at the end hopefully feel something, you know, mm. like that actually moves them. So the graphics are always a part a part of that. Like, yeah, Tron, absolutely. Like, that was such a big touch point. There's also a bit at the beginning of Escape from New York, uh, where there's like this little wireframe animation that goes into the city. Stuff like that. Like, just making you feel like this was the era that this film is almost taking place and that John's yeah. heading back there and stuff like that. And that was exactly the the visuals that we were kind of inspired by and wanted to feed into the sound of it and the music of it and all that kind of stuff and have every one of those creative elements used like to their full to create this experience that went beyond hopefully like yeah just a kind of sports biopic and was a bit more ambitious i guess
0: definitely what did he what did he, what was his response when he watched it in <laughs> film for the first time
2: well i remember sitting i it was a couple of months ago i like turned to my right and just sat down and like universal logo came on and i was like oh oh, shit i'm watching this with john oh man (laughs) you watched it with him Uh, it was intense yeah well i I did think at one point oh my god i just want to leave um but uh it was intense at at tribeca we watched it with his
1: entire family oh yeah yeah (laughs) and they sat they sat the whole road of family directly
2: behind us. so especially They are like, they are, uh, you know, they're a kind of, well, they're New Yorkers, you know, they're going to say what they think. Um, So that was definitely intimidating. But John the first time John saw it, he said to me, he looked at me and he was like, that was really, really difficult to watch. Mm. And that is a great thing. And I thought that was testament to who he is. And he didn't want a puff piece. He didn't want something that just made him look great and erase all his flaws he wanted something human and honest and authentic and he felt that I guess did him justice to the spirit of who he is because you can't answer someone's life in like yeah like 90 minutes or something yeah you can I think capture a spirit of someone and I think he felt really definitely I know he felt really moved by that and I think he's pretty proud of it but as Felix says yeah then the next um. time it was like Patty and all the kids and everything and we were just like oh my god
1: and they like you know the, in the like they did a little Q and A afterwards, and it's into yeah. like a bit like how you can imagine dinner at the Mac and Rose, where like Patty was shouting stuff at him. <laughs> <half of> the- <laughs> the- yeah. <"What's laughs> about the kids. Yeah, just the- answer it, John. Like what <laughs> they were And they were like shouting across <laughs> each other, like <laughs> hundreds of people surrounding them. It was like
2: brilliant. oh, it's yeah. film experience. Yeah, oh. it's brilliant, but it is intense, and you can you can forget. He is raw, like it's a raw film, particularly that last half hour. And gosh, if that was me, yeah. I wouldn't be able to sit there and watch it, let alone be in it, you know, like, yeah. I just, and I think it's easy to forget. I do feel like you have a moral responsibility to people that are prepared to like put their heart mm. and soul on a screen to like do them justice and be true to them, you know, like, and not, yeah, not manipulate it, just try and present them as they are. And that's, that's definitely what we tried to do.
0: Yeah, I think you've done an amazing job. Really, really, really great. Thanks so much for your time. So great to chat to you. What's next?
2: I don't know. We've got a few ideas. We've got a few kind of a a pretty big hybrid kind of doc drama type idea that's in development. Yeah, which is out of sport. So that'd be quite a challenge, but I'm really quite excited about that. So, um, yeah, that's from a filmmaking perspective. And from a, a music perspective, Fee, what's anything coming up? I don't know, really.
1: If I have been making a record for a few years, which is going to start start seeing the light like of day somehow, nice. and then as you know, I've got this label Yalla, so we're putting out records and you know all kinds of different things. Yeah,
0: amazing. Yeah. Well, listen, Um, I hope we get to chat again soon. And thank you for your time.
2: Thank really, you, Really, really
0: appreciate it. It's so great to chat to you both. And it's just really lovely as well, kind of having you both to kind of talk about this this brilliant film that you've made together. So thank you so much, oh, guys. Thank you
2: so much for the support, Edith. Really Pleasure. appreciate it. Have nice a great
0: time. day. See you Bye. later. Bye. From Felix White's score to Macanaw, that's never let anyone in, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Felix and director Barney Douglas. As promised, Carrie Cracknell is up next with her wonderful interpretation of persuasion, which I absolutely adored. I thought it was a much-needed kind of refreshment of a very old story lots of updates lots of uh, contemporary additions to this film and I think she's done a wonderful job you can watch it on Netflix right now it's scored by her longtime collaborator Stuart Al, who penned this cliff Up Prelude Thank you so much for coming to chat to us on Soundtracking. The music in your film is, is really an important character, I think. Um, it has a real presence. It kind of feels like we're arm in arm with it in a weird way. You know, in terms of like in, within the film, we have these lovely moments where they're on walks and there are different kind of setups of people walking together arm in arm or, or linked arms and stuff. And the music almost feels a bit like that in the film in a, in a subtle but necessary way.
3: That's a really beautiful way of describing it. Yeah, I think the great joy for me was working with Stuart Earl on the score, who I've collaborated with a lot over the last 10 yeah. years. And it was really interesting for us to have to step quite far outside of our own comfort zone, I think, in terms of looking for the kind of really, really fine tonal shifts all the time in the film. One of the things that felt most important was to kind of capture the longing and the melancholy of Anne's experience and Wentworth's experience. and And then also find these moments of romance, but then kind of countering that with this humour and the kind of more comedic sections, which needed like a formality and a sharpness. And it was really interesting and quite complicated to sort of calibrate that tone, I think, with the score through the film. And I think Stuart's done a really beautiful piece of work in that sense. Um, but certainly for us, at times, it felt like we were out of our taste kind of comfort zone, yeah. which was quite kind of interesting. That
0: must yeah. be that's a really interesting point, which I've never really talked about. Because you know the thing with with filmmaking that I've come to discover, particularly for composers, actually, is they have to leave their they have to leave their egos and they have to leave their not their taste, but their I guess their choice of you know what they personally are into and listen to, kind of at the door, really, because they're there. To facilitate this collaboration, these characters, this narrative, the story, which must be quite a difficult thing, you know, in terms of I'm not really into that kind of thing or it's not my, you know, it's it's, I hadn't really thought about it in that way before. But that's quite an interesting thing to to have to do, really. Not an easy thing, I imagine. I,
3: I find it mind blowing because I think, you know, when you think about that role within a film, you're asking someone to be a primary artist, a generative artist to come up with you know completely original moving haunting emotional music to render that you know with a group of musicians and at the same time you're asking them as you say to check their ego at the door and to be kind of profoundly collaborative and in conversation all the time with um, a moving and sort of evolving edit and with the needs and requirements not only of the director and the editorial team but of course of the producers and the you know sort of wider organization that are making the film and So for me on this as my first film experience observing that I found really humbling because I always sort of want to try and create good conditions for people to make their work. And I think kind of writing original music on demand day to day is such an extraordinary Mm. task, you know, to sort of live inside and to then do that and to be able to kind of be involved in the beating heart of the story all the time and listening to that as your sort of guide. Yeah, I found it pretty moving, Mm. actually. Do you mind going back
0: to how you and Stuart started working together? Because as you say, you've been collaborating together for quite a number of years now. How did that relationship start and what was the specific project that you started working together?
3: So he was training at the National Film School and, and becoming a film and TV composer in sort of early stages of his career. And I was sort of getting going at the Young Vic and I made a production of A Doll's House and I wanted to have a big kind of classical cinematic score So I asked him to come and collaborate on it, and we had this kind of amazing first collaboration in which he really wrote these very, very beautiful pieces for the transitions, and almost we didn't change them at all. It was one of those rare collaborations where he just sort of offered his music, and it was brilliant. And so then I've been very lucky to be able to sort of snare him across into theatre over a whole series of shows because he doesn't normally work in theatre. But I've always tried to use music in a way that I guess feels quite cinematic and as a sort of very strong character in the work, and I I appreciate. Not only that we share taste, Stuart and I, but he's a very deft dramaturg. I think he's very thoughtful about story. And and yeah, so we've been on some pretty mm-hmm. wild journeys across all sorts of genres, a lot of electro stuff, you know, some pretty like hardcore sort of techno things in a show we did called Judy, mm-hmm. and then lots of really classical music as well. Is it a different sort
0: of thought process or is there a difference between thinking about music for theatre and music for. It's crazy to think this is your first feature because, you know, watching it it's so accomplished and beautiful and has a, a really incredible kind of presence I think as well in it it's a different journey thinking about music for theater as opposed to thinking about for film
3: what I found remarkable about the whole directing process is obviously the nuts and bolts of the process are very different but really it's the same muscle mm. all, all of it is the same because it's just going back to trusting your instinct being involved with the story being in love with the story whether that's in your work with the actors, in your work with the music, work with the design, you know, it's the same central leaders yes. somehow. And I found that really freeing, that realisation, that although I was in this context that's pretty alien and fast and has different kinds of producing pressures on it, it was really wonderful. About two days in, I just thought, oh, okay, I have this. It's the same, it's the same sort of mechanism. Yeah. And I think, you know, working with the music, felt like that I guess the bigger challenge for me is the sort of wider conversation around the music in terms of um working with the financiers and the the producers who you know were brilliant and actually I think had really really sage input and feedback in the sort of calibrating of the tone of the film but obviously in theatre you get very spoiled because there's a sort of secrecy and a privacy to some extent you know I just make my work and that's it so I found that all really fascinating and it has its own kind of levels of
0: complexity. Yeah, Because I wondered whether there was a a similar amount of, I don't know what point Stuart kind of came on with, with persuasion, but how much performance can influence the kind of the score, you know, and what's created and stuff. When you think, you talked about, you know, Julian and those amazing performances in that, you know, whether it be Vanessa Kirby and stuff and whether those individual performances are Influence and the choices of music, the tone of music, that kind of thing, or whether it's the story itself, or whether it's a combination of the two, really.
3: I mean, the amazing thing about making in these forms is I guess it's like a live growth (laughs) that like crawls out of these cracks in you (laughs) and it comes out of a story. And then, I mean, the thing I love about directing always, I was sort of thinking about it this morning in the shower, is this sort of combination. The demand, I guess, the whole time to stay in your child and to be like this quite weird, deviant child that sort of lives in another reality, like a dream reality, and then on the other hand, to try and be the kind of ultimate grown up, which is also what being a director is, I think, and taking the full responsibility and not kind of laying blame in other places and you know really accepting your own limitations and and so I guess for me, music is something that kind of again, it's like it grows out of the thing that's being yeah. made in front of you that somehow is just being generated. And there's this odd, like, organic rhythm between the collaborators. And what's amazing is you could never, ever, I don't believe anyone could ever predict how the thing is going to look at the end because it's just this strange kind of set of happenstance, circumstances between you and a group of people who are kind of working.
0: It's interesting because um, I remember when we spoke to to Nicholas Brattel and about working with, with Barry Jenkins, and he talked about specifically if Beale Street could talk and about how, you know, we were talking about whether performance and he's, he was like, absolutely. He's like, if, and it's not just performance, he said, it's the it's the, it's the the casting as well. You know, he he talked about Regina King as a particular, and he went, if someone else had been cast in that role, the score would have been completely different. And that's, that's bonkers to think about, isn't it? It's really exciting as well to think about how, like you say, there's no edges to it. It's all kind of part of this, this living thing that that relies on all the parts of it to kind of form this fully formed thing. It's wonderful.
3: Yeah, and also that idea, I guess, that you could have kind of, we talked about it a lot in the edit, infinite versions of the (laughs) film. I mean, literally (laughs) infinite edits, kind of millions of versions. There's a sort of insanity in that, but also, I guess, a freedom. And then the thing you have to keep coming back to is just your own gut and your own instinct and trying to follow that, really.
0: I love reading about your journey because I always feel a bit sometimes like I'm a phony in a way you know and I because I didn't I didn't study music I didn't study film I'm just a fan really and that's kind of where I come from with all of this and I I kind of really loved hearing that you know you didn't grow up going to theater all the time and stuff but you went to a particular production and you fell in love with it and you were like oh this is how I want to express myself and that's so encouraging and inspiring to hear I think because I think so many people feel like you have to I don't know you have to be taught it or you have to be you know it has to have been part of your DNA from and it's like that's so inspiring to hear that I think considering when you look at you know your wonderful collection of work that you've worked on in theatre and now in film as well.
3: Yeah I think um, you grow into an interest don't you somehow it's an odd thing somehow through your childhood I mean I kind of look back on it and I spent a lot of time on my own. I spent a lot of time imagining stuff and being quite sort of weird and playing with dolls until I was way too old probably and and making shows, you know, I was always making little shows in my garden with my friends and and I guess when I meet people who say that they want to start directing or are interested in it, it's like just make you yeah. know make any way you can, whether it's getting your phone and starting to make your own films or making things for your friends or making your own music or whatever it is it's kind of I I don't know. Yeah, there shouldn't be any reason that someone can or can't begin, you know, and it's just sort of about, I guess, ultimately the challenge is like, can you find the faith in yourself to believe that what you have to say and the way you see things is interesting? And if you can overcome that, I sort of think it's possible.
0: Yeah. When when you were kind of growing up and and watching film and stuff, did music music within that world connect with you? Were there certain films or things that you kind of, the music really resonated with you and stuck with you?
3: I interestingly didn't watch that much film growing up, much more as I got older. I spent a lot of my childhood watching MTV, interestingly, in that sort of really peak era, I guess, when it was just some of the best stuff being made and, you know, like just endlessly watching Missy Elliott videos (laughs) and Radio Hype Williams videos. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, and I guess I kind of look back on that time as probably on one level a bit of a waste you know I used to spend whole days watching when my mom and dad were at work just watching MTV but then I also realized that somewhere in my sort of brain that has triggered this kind of relationship between music and visual and maybe somewhere a kind of editorial instinct Mm -hmm. that I think totally came out of that and has been something I've always been sort of trying to explore and weirdly I've been sick this week with COVID and I've been in a little WhatsApp group with my brother and his two kids and we've just been sending each other our (laughs) favourite music videos again and it's so interesting how so many of them going back to that era you know of that sort of just beautiful really pure creativity which isn't about story necessarily Mm -hmm. but is about capturing a mood and an atmosphere and a energy so if I was really honest, I would say that's probably been one of the bigger influences yeah. on the way that I've got. Into- what
0: were some of the videos there that were flying between the WhatsApp groups this week? Wow,
3: well, <laughs> back to a lot of Radiohead always. Oh then there's been a lot of Little sins. Um It's been all over the place actually. Some Kendrick Lamar. I mean, it's been a it's been a big week. Yeah. Uh, what did you watch the now?
0: Did you watch Kendrick's
3: performance at Glastonbury on telly? Yeah, I mean, I just thought the final minute of that was one of the most extraordinary moments and i think i don't know it's easy to diminish how political art Mm -hmm. can be and i think those moments are really powerful gets you somewhere in the heart doesn't it and and that's what i love about music and i've always loved about dance as well you know when it's it's not rational it's not literary it's not it's not in the mind it's not intellectual it's something much deeper, and i think that's why we you know we go back to those moments don't we we want to kind of be moved in that way it's very human i think
0: i think it's one of the most um spectacular things I've I've ever seen, to be honest, that kind of amalgamation of even simple things like throughout the entire set, his movement was so fluid and almost balletic, if that's a word, I don't even know if it is, but it felt like, I don't know if that was considered or whether it was just how he felt in the moment or whether it was choreographed and stuff, but he, he, was, he was like a dancer in the way that he moved himself around that stage, even when it was just him on that stage, you know, in his white shirt and he's black. And it was just like kind of I don't feel like yeah it was just it was mesmerizing and and kind of hypnotic and saying so much as well in such simple things let's get back to persuasion because there's a you know when when you think of a I don't know when you go oh period drama there's a playlist there of what people expect with films of period dramas and you know whether it's Chopin and all that kind of stuff and I love that you absolutely kind of you took a total left hand turn with that in terms of you're not reliant on other people's music or music of a time that's, that's got kind of baggage with it already. It was important that it's new and it's, yes, it's got elements of periodic nature to it, but it feels contemporary and it feels, yeah. Is that always going to yeah, be I the case?
3: That, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always interested in finding the sort of relationship between the period that the piece is imagined in and then the now and trying to sort of, look at the world I guess through a contemporary lens and so musically it always felt really important that we would sort of hold the period to some extent but also look for a freshness and a modernity and a kind of simplicity which is what we've done I think aesthetically as well. And then this decision to have the song at the end, we've worked with this brilliant singer-songwriter, Birdie, who wrote an original song for the end of the film, actually having had a whole series of different conversations with other artists as well, all of which were really incredible Mm. about that moment. And she's caught the sort of sense of both fear of your life passing by you that I think is at the centre of this book, that kind of terror that you have in your 20s and 30s, I think, that everything's going too fast, and then the sort of romance and the celebration of the end of the film, and she somehow kind of caught both of those things. And so I think it is quite surprising when there's a sort of lyrical moment at the end of a of a film without kind of lyrical elements. It does feel, to me, I think, deeply rooted to the soul of the film, but also does have a very contemporary quality. And I think Birdie's really captured.
0: Yeah, that. You always feel like it could be it could be Anne singing it, which is kind of a lovely kind of thought in a way as well
3: definitely and i think that's how she thought of it and i think it's great for that reason that we ended up actually with a british artist as well so that you kind of have that voice and that sensibility
0: how does it work with that kind of thing do you sort of put out a brief to sort of half a dozen artists and go do you want to submit or submit an idea for what i mean I've, i don't know how it works is that kind of how yeah. it works
3: yeah and we had some amazing conversations with really like humblingly brilliant people and and there were sort of two other songs that i also was completely in mm. love with and it's always heartbreaking when you can't use them all, but actually there, you know, it's just something about a very, very particular moment in a story and it needs to sort of capture something. And yeah. And she had done that, I think both lyrically and melodically.
0: I think as well with it, what really works with it, sometimes when you get, I'm not going to name names, but sometimes when you go, Oh, so and so's done a song for the, for this film sort of thing. And you're like wicked. And then it's kind of, you know, it's at the end of the film where it's in the the, the sort of the closing credits and it's, it's basically a shoehorn in to have had a, a famous do a song for the film. This feels the total opposite because it almost feels like how the film closes. I'm not going to give any spoilers away for anyone, but how the film closes and you're going, oh, I wonder what happens next. Or And it almost kind of feels like with Birdie's song, it's kind of going, well, let me tell you.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think there was a sort of, um, there's like a subtlety, yeah. isn't there in it um, and a really fine purity somehow to the song and so it didn't feel like a kind of great big needle drop and that felt really mm. important that um, it sort of allows you to hold a bit of complexity at the end yeah. of the film and yeah it was you know it took, it took time to kind of get that right but I'm really I'm really pleased and I feel like she also really listened to Stu's score and had sort of taken that on board and so it fitted with with what he'd written
4: I'd say it was an offshore light passing ships in the night and now i'm tracing shadows on your back like i dreamt so many times oh for so long i've been waiting for so long for love like this and i was so sure baby i lost you for a minute but there's a sweet day
0: The the brilliant thing you mentioned way back at the start was that kind of the way that he's managed to do these two because the film is, is, I love it that it doesn't fit in a genre because it kind of it's a rom com, it's a it's a it's a drama, it's it's a thriller at moments as well. You know, there's there's just lovely elements, different elements of different genres of film, and I love when things don't kind of fit in a box. But for a composer to kind of be able to switch between the kind of like when your heart is in your mouth in a in a romantic moment to to kind of you know mostly when Mia's on screen and it's a merry moment you know of kind of comedy of kind of just instant of of it dropping into that mode sonically is so clever but it doesn't feel clunky or can you answer how he does that I mean what it's so clever
3: I think um I agree yeah I think he's done a really really deft bit of sort of tonal it's like kind of sands in the scene you know you're just sort of moving back and forward and It's all with a very, very light touch. It took us quite a long time to search for the kind of aesthetic of the more comic music in a way, because I think we always knew that we were interested in a sort of predominantly piano, but also orchestral score for those bigger sweeping cinematic moments and for the sort of Wentworth and Anne on the beach. Some of those cues bubbled up pretty quickly for Stu. I think what felt harder was to sort of catch this tone between you know some of the temp stuff we had was like Vivaldi and it had like a real formality to it and it was very sort of sharp orchestral music and then we also tried stuff that felt very like American indie road movie you know we were sort of trying yeah. to find this tone between those two things and actually I think what Stu's ended up doing is sort of like taking all those influences and cooking yeah. this, this sort of thread for the comic stuff that it just allows it to be funny and allows you to know that you're watching a comedy and then sort of just about dovetail in time across to the stuff that's a bit more grown up and mm. emotional.
0: There's so many beautiful scenes in the film. One that really kind of I really loved and kind of stuck with me. I don't know whether it's because I grew up in a fishing village, but um, when Anne's in the sea after she's had that kind of chat on the beach with Wentworth, I mean, the timing on that scene is just wonderful in both of, you know, with Cosmo and and Dakota's delivery of that. It's just the kind of awkward, the awkwardness. You're kind of like, oh, my God, come on. (laughs) It's so good. It's so honest and just feels so real. And then when she's kind of just in the sea, it feels like a mini music video, weirdly. Like when you're talking about music videos there, I kind of think sort of almost like a sort of Sinead O'Connor, nothing compares to you type thing. Do you know what I mean? Of that, just how the karma, just very sort of subtle bits, just slightly ducks under the water almost. And you kind of, it's so beautifully done. I love that scene.
3: Oh, it was really joyful making that. And um, yeah, I mean, we were thinking about Anne, and actually, Jane Austen, who swam at Lyme and would go in her sort of swimming dress. And, you know, I kind of love thinking about her as a walker and a reader and a thinker and a swimmer. And, you know, this woman who is a grown up and she kind of lives her life on her own predominantly because her family don't understand her and she doesn't really have a kind of connectivity with anybody apart from him. And, yeah, so it just felt really lovely to see her swim and. For Me, it's that's my sacred place, you know, to be in the water, and it's where I direct and it's where I process. And it's and actually, I spend a lot of time in the sea near from where, where you're from in the east. Do you? Um, that's where my partner's from. No yeah. way. Um, yeah, King's Barnes. So I love the sea there. Yeah, my so, mum
0: swims in Celladike Pool water every water. morning. Well, We've just go. had new steps put in, it's so cool. it's a lot safer.
3: <laughs> One of the great pools, yeah. So it felt really. I don't know, both historically accurate, but also sort of oddly a bit not Jane Austeny mm-hmm. somehow to have Anne in her dress, just sort of yeah. release and go right. I'm going to swim out, and yeah, it was certainly one of the highlights filming that. And um, Dakota was very bold about being in the freezing water because obviously we're all used to swimming in
0: freezing. Yeah, water, but yeah, sure I bet. There. I think I've, I think that this is the, the I think is the best thing she's done. I feel like it's it's an opportunity to see a side of her. Her acting ability that we haven't had the chance to see really. I think you've done an amazing job with pulling that out of or giving her an opportunity to really, really do that. Yeah, I think it's it's um it's brilliant. Do you think this is the most biographical character of Austin It feels like just hearing you talk about it in particular. It feels like. I wonder if it's her.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much of her in all of her books, and that's why she's a great writer. You know, there's a lot of honesty, isn't there? But. I definitely feel that here and you know there's a sort of I guess the tragedy the sort of elements of tragedy in her life and the elements of being out of time and and feeling a bit out of place those qualities I think are the thing that we all connect to in the book it's a very mature work isn't yeah it? and I think it's
0: that's honest cool. I think as well just in terms of, yeah she's so selfless as well like she can't like even in those moments where it feels like he's Slowly, but surely being sort of taken away from her, and she can 't find the kind of don 't know what it is strength or whatever to kind of pull him to pull him back or just to be honest about her feelings and her, yeah, I thought it was I think it's just so, such an honest journey into kind of sometimes how we feel in relationships as females and kind of not having the confidence yeah. to say what we want and how we feel
3: sometimes it's like she 's kind of stood on a win- on the outside of the window, you know looking mm. in and everything's happening. like those dreams you have you know where you can't get in and you can't control yeah and I think that's Anne's experience I have a weird recurring nightmare that I always have just before I start a project where I'm always in the wrong room and all the actors are in (laughs) another room behind a window and they're always all chain smoking and I normally have a baby in a buggy that won't stop screaming and I'm always trying to get in and I can't get in and the actors are all there it's very profound (laughs) but actually weirdly that dream sort of felt like Anne's experience at times Mm. of her life you know and she's very joyful about it she's very sort of Sweet nature yeah. about it, but it's the feeling that she can't somehow become the agent of her own experience yeah. um, until she does. Mm-hmm. What's next? Back to theatre or more film? More yes! films. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've got another film that I'm developing, which I'm going to hopefully make next year. Um, and then I'm doing an opera actually. I'm going to do Carmen at the Met. <gasps> so I'm just working on that at the moment.
0: Oh my God. Wow, every hair on my arm just stood on end to that. That's going to be so, oh, wow, that's amazing. When's that going to
3: be? Um, that opens New Year's Eve 2023.
0: Oh, Kari, so exciting. I hope that it says, you know, it's great to hear that you've got another film kind of waiting, ready, or, or kind of, you know, planning to go sort of thing, because I think I I, I really loved this. I thought it was really kind of beautiful. It felt contemporary and a, an, an unnecessary shift in in telling of austin and her characters and yeah i thought it was you know and i got to watch it again the other night for the second time and i, I sort of the love deepened for it so yeah congratulations thank you so much and great to chat to you and then um, tell Stuart. we'll chat to him at some point too because i'd love to pick his brain about it at some point so yeah thank you so much love
4: thanks thanks
0: From Stuart Elscore to Persuasion, that's the letter rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Carrie Cracknell, Barney Douglas and Felix White. My huge thanks to Carrie, Barney and Felix for taking time to join us. Persuasion is available to watch on Netflix now whilst McEnroe is on general release and I highly recommend that you watch both. You don't have to be a Jane Austen fan to enjoy Persuasion and you don't have to be a tennis nut to enjoy McEnroe. So go and watch Do head to edithbowman.com to catch up with every single previous episode of the podcast and also subscribe and find dedicated Spotify playlists for every single episode. You can email me, info at edithbowman.com if you want to get anything off your mind. Apologies for no correspondence this week. It's been a little bit busy and because we had three guests, we thought we didn't need any more content. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. Next I'm very excited to welcome back to the podcast Mr Clint Mansell and as has been the case previously with a couple of the episodes that Clint's been on is that he's been joined by some of his direct and collaborators so whether that is Duncan Jones or Ben Wheatley This time he's joined by the hugely talented Charlotte Colbert. Together they have a new film coming out. It's called She Will and I think it's absolutely outstanding. Charlotte Colbert, the writer and director of She Will and Clint Mansell are next week's guests. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.